Let's turn together in our Bibles to Philippians this morning. Philippians chapter 2. And I'm going to read verses 5 through 8 as we study the condescension of Christ. Philippians 2, 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. In verse 3 of this second chapter of Philippians, the Apostle Paul urges Christians to lowliness of mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. And in our text, in order to strengthen his readers to practice such lowliness, Paul brings before them the example of the Lord Jesus Christ, who, with a view to saving others, condescended to leave the glories of heaven and come to this wicked, sinful world as a man. Now, to condescend means to stoop or descend from a higher level or superior position. Webster's New Collegiate Dictionary defines the word condescend as to stoop or descend to an attitude less formal or stately to waive the privilege of rank or dignity. The Random House Dictionary defines condescend as to waive dignity or superiority voluntarily and assume equality with an inferior. This English word, condescend, is used only once in the New Testament. It's used in Romans 12, 16, but its use there helps define its meaning for us. There Paul says, mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Condescension is the act of condescending. Noah Webster's 1828 Dictionary defines condescension as voluntary descent from rank, dignity, or just claims. Well, in our text, Paul exhorts his readers to imitate Christ in his condescension. The condescension of Christ is a tremendous and inexhaustible subject and in today's study, I want to focus our attention on this matter by considering three aspects of this condescension. These three things. One, the pre-condescension glory of Christ. Two, the nature of Christ's condescension. And three, the twofold purpose of Christ's condescension. So first, let's look at the pre-condescension glory of Christ. Now that means the glory 
that Christ had before he condescended to come to earth as a man. Christ did not come into existence when he was born as a man at Bethlehem. He has eternally existed as God the Son. There never was a time when he did not exist as God. Turn to John 8:58. John chapter 8 verse 58. Here the Lord Jesus is speaking to the Jews who were opposing his claims. Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. And this was a clear claim that he existed before Abraham. Abraham lived 2,000 years before the time when the Lord Jesus lived as a man. In fact, the term I am is in the present tense, indicating that Christ is the eternally self-existent one. At any point in time or eternity, Christ is I am. Always in the present tense. In Isaiah 57, 15, God the Son speaks of His eternal existence. Let's turn to that. Isaiah 57, 15. Isaiah chapter 57 and verse 15. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. But look at that first phrase. That just blows your mind to use the common vernacular. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity. 700 years before Christ, before he was born as a man, Isaiah 6, 1 through 4 describes him as sitting on a throne high and lifted up. Let's turn to that. Isaiah 6, 1 through 4. Just turn over to the first part of that book if you're still there. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Now, keep in mind this is speaking of Christ, God the Son. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain, or two, he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Now, how do we know that's talking about Christ? Because John 12, 41 says this Isaiah passage is speaking of Christ. You look it up. Write it down and look it up. John 12, 41. Well, let's, while we're in Isaiah, let's turn next to Isaiah 40 and verse 15. Isaiah 40 and verse 15. 
Isaiah speaks of the greatness of this God. Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket and are counted as the small dust of the balance. Behold, he taketh up the isles as a very little thing. The greatness of God, especially God the Son. Now Psalm 50, verses 10 through 12. Psalm 50, verses 10 through 12. This Here, this God declared that he was the owner and proprietor of the whole earth. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know all the fowls of the mountains. And the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell thee, for the world is mine and the fullness thereof. Uh, I'm just going to throw something in free here. Every time we come back and forth from Gore Springs, we pass the Gillen Farm out there. And I'm sure all of you know where that is. And uh, they, over the years, they've cleared... Uh, all of the woods out there, and you can see the hills. That property's got some hills on it. And it's all, he's, he runs about 50 or 60 head of cattle on, on those hills. Every time we drive by there, I think about this verse, that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, not just that one, but on a thousand hills. In eternity... Before he took flesh and became a man, Christ was rich, according to 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Let's turn to that. All of these verses tell us the condescension glory of Christ. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. Christ, in his pre-condescension glory, created the world and all things, according to John 1, 1 through 3. Let's turn to John 1, 1 through 3. Isn't it amazing how often we come to this passage in John in our preaching and in our study of God's Word. John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Then verse 14 identifies the Word as Christ. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. So great and majestic and infinite was God the Son before He came to this earth as a man. That Psalm 113, 4-6 says, He humbled Himself to even look at things in heaven. Think about that. The things in heaven. Got a description of that in Revelation, but uh, if you think about the lower heavens, he, he, he stoops to even look at them. Uh, turn to 
Psalm 113, and I'll read verses 4 through 6 here. Psalm 113, verses 4 through 6. The Lord is high above all nations, and His glory above the heavens. Who is like unto the Lord our God, who dwelleth on high, who humbleth Himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth. Every interest by him in any creature is an act of condescension. All of his dealings with his creatures are matters of condescension. Our text speaks of Christ's pre-condescension glory in verse 6, <coughs> where Paul says that before his birth as a man, Christ was, quote, in the form of God and equal with God, unquote. Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. A.W. Pink uh, wrote a book called Gleanings in the Godhead. Outstanding book. And he says in this book, quote, the form of God speaks of his visible glory. His displayed majesty, his manifested sovereignty. No mere creature, no matter how superior a being, could ever be in the form of God. The position which Christ held in eternity was one of supreme dignity and glory. He was in the form of God. And Paul also says in verse 6 that the pre-condescension Christ was equal with God. No created being could possibly be equal with God. In Isaiah 40, 25, God asks a rhetorical question, the obvious answer to which is no one. Let's turn to that, Isaiah 40, verse 25. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 25. <coughs> to whom then will ye liken me, or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One. Now, God, you know, you don't get an answer to a rhetorical question. It's so obvious. The obvious answer to that is no one is equal with God. For any mere creature to claim to be equal with God would be the worst robbery of God's glory possible. No created being could possibly be equal with God. But he who is God the Son is equal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. In his pre-condescension state, Christ was equal with God in dignity, in authority, and in power. He was truly God, and he claimed during his earthly ministry to be equal with God. The Jews of his day understood this to be his claim. Turn to John 5, 17 and 18. John 5, 17 and 18. 
But Jesus answered them, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Those wicked Jews knew what he was saying. So, in his pre-condescension glory, Christ, God the Son, existed in the form of God and was equal with God, and thus he shared in the glory of God. Well, let's look secondly here at the nature of Christ's condescension. Any consideration of or actions toward his creatures is condescension on God's part. But when we speak of the condescension of Christ, we usually have reference to his incarnation. The condescension of Christ consisted in his assuming our nature, the word becoming flesh, as John 1.14 states it. In this condescension of Christ, God himself was manifest in the flesh. To use Paul's language in 1 Timothy 3.16. Let's turn to that. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. 1 Timothy 3.16. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. His condescension involved the Son of God taking into union with Himself a created nature, the dust of humanity, one preacher described it. This was an act of infinite condescension. Being God and having all the eternal glory that that entailed, Christ was made man for our sake. The infinite, someone said, became an infant. And when he was born, it's significant, he didn't go to the nursery of Caesar's palace in Rome. He went to where the barnyard animals were fed. You talk about condescension. In coming in the flesh, he entered into the office of mediator that placed him below God. Turn to John 14, verse 28. John 14, verse 28. Here the Lord Jesus said, Ye have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. If ye love me, ye would rejoice because I said, I go unto the Father. For my Father is greater than I. In his incarnation, he was for a while made lower than the angels. According to Hebrews 2.7. Let me just read that to you. Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor and did set him over the works of thy hands. Galatians 4.4 4 says that Jesus Christ was made under 
the law. Well, in coming into this world as a man, he so humbled himself that he actually said prophetically in Psalm 22, 6, that he was a worm in comparison with those who were of any importance in this world. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. Christ did not take this office by chance, nor was it forced upon him. Nothing in his condition required this. He did not need to do it. It added nothing to him. He graciously condescended to take it and to discharge it. What a mighty chasm between the heights of glory that he had left and this miserable world to which he came. How far he was now from the throne he had sat upon for all eternity. This was what some have very properly called the infinite stoop. Now it's important that we understand here that Christ's condescension is not quite the same as his humiliation of which God's word speaks so often. In verses 7 and 8 of our text in Philippians 2, the Holy Spirit makes a distinction between Christ's condescension and his humiliation. But made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man... He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. First of all, uh, he made himself of no reputation, speaks of his condescension, which consisted of his taking flesh and becoming a man. And then in verse 8, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. That speaks of his humiliation. His humiliation consisted in the abasement and sufferings that he endured as as a result of his taking our nature. The assumption of a human nature was not a part of his humiliation. It was his sufferings and death in that nature that made up his humiliation. Verse 7 in our text declares Christ's condescension but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. This was his condescension. If God humbles himself to even look at things in heaven and on earth, how much more so to actually take flesh and live among the lowly. The angels must have been greatly surprised when they learned that the eternal son would take flesh and become a man. They must have been shocked to learn that he who was everlasting and immortal would one day become a man and go to the cross. In understanding the meaning of Christ's condescension, it will be helpful to consider some things that it did not involve. And let's look at three of these here, two or three of them, 
things that Christ's condescension did not involve. First of all, his his condescension did not involve his laying aside or separating from his divine nature. He never did that. He did not cease to be God when he became a man. Now, the Arian heretics of the 4th and 5th century A.D. thought that Jesus Christ ceased to be God when he became a man. But according to God's word, not one of his divine attributes was relinquished or laid aside, and not one moment, not for one moment, did he cease to be God. Secondly, His condescension did not involve any mixture of the two natures in Christ. His divine nature was in no way mixed with his human nature. Now some heretics called the Eutychians in the 6th century A.D. taught that the two natures of Christ were mixed into one nature in the incarnation. But this could not happen without some change in the divine nature. And James 1.17 says, there is no variableness nor shadow of turning in the divine nature. There was no change whatsoever in Christ's divine nature involved in his condescension. And thirdly, his condescension did not involve the conversion of his divine nature into his human nature. Some in history have taught that it did. They said that like the water at Cana of Galilee was turned into wine, the divine nature of Christ was turned into a human nature. The divine nature was changed into the human like the Catholics imagine in their doctrine of transubstantiation that in the Mass the bread and the wine actually change into the body and blood of Christ. Such a conversion would also involve a change in the divine nature. But again, James 1.17 says that in God there is no variableness nor shadow of turning. But what actually did happen to Christ's divine nature in this condescension? He did not cease to be in the form of God when he took upon him the form of a servant in our nature. John Owen said that though he became what he was not, he did not cease to be what he was. And I want to read that again. Though he became what he was not, he did not cease to be what he was. The Son of God became in time what he was not, the Son of Man. But in doing this, he did not cease to be what he was, the eternal Son of God. While he was a man on this earth, he claimed that he continued to be God. In such verses as John 3.13, let's turn to that. John 3, verse 13. And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, 
even the Son of Man which is in heaven. Though he was at that moment a man standing on this earth, he had not ceased to be God and was actually present in heaven. (laughs) I can't understand these things. There was no change in Christ's divine nature when he condescended to become a man. He just united that divine nature to a human nature in one person. He veiled the glory of his divine nature in our nature so that there was no outward manifestation of that divine nature. His divine nature was, for a while, obscured by the imposing veil of human flesh. Well, to sum up the nature of Christ's condensation, condensation, I can't get the right word, condescension. Condensation is what keeps happening on our windows at this time of year. But his condescension consists basically of three things. One, the eternal Son of God, by an act of divine power and love, assumed our nature into union with his divine nature in one person. Two, in assuming our nature, Christ's divine nature was not changed in any way. And three, because of his assuming our nature, the glory of his divine nature uh, or his divine person was veiled and he made himself of no reputation. Now, if you had seen the Lord Jesus walking down the road and just looked at him, you would not have known that he was God because his deity was veiled by his human flesh. It was still there. Well, the third aspect of Christ's condescension that I want us to consider here is the twofold purpose of Christ's condescension. According to God's Word, there are two prominent purposes of the condescension of Christ. The first purpose was the redemption of God's people. In the council of the Godhead in eternity past, God the Father chose a people to save, the elect. God the Son agreed to die for those people and redeem them from their sins. And God the Holy Spirit agreed to apply that redemptive work of Christ to God's elect. God the Son condescended to become man in order to accomplish the greatest work ever done in this world, the redemption of God's elect. Though in his divine nature he was overall God blessed forever, to use Paul's words in Romans 9, 5, yet he humbled himself. He condescended to save the elect. The taking of our nature for the work of the office of mediator was the infinite condescension of the Son of God. Even though I'm the chief of sinners, he condescended that I might be saved. You can put yourself in there. We disregard his law. Uh, we, we did. We made fun of his preachers. We broke his Sabbath day. 
And yet he condescended to come to this earth to accomplish our redemption. Praise to his holy name. Then a second purpose in Christ's condescension is the display of his glory. In the fact of his condescension, we see the glory of Christ. The condescension of Christ is a most extraordinary and amazing thing that the eternal Son of God would become man. Think about it. What a wonder that the Son of God would condescend to take our nature on himself. Again, John Owen said, What heart can conceive, what tongue can express the glory of that condescension in the Son of God by which he took our nature to be his own in order to take the office of mediator on our behalf. No man can fully understand the mystery of his assumption of our nature into personal union with the Son of God. Finite man can never fully understand the infinite God. This is what Ephesians 3.19 calls the love of Christ that passes knowledge, that the eternal Son of God would take our nature into personal union with himself. We are such finite or limited creatures that we cannot even admire that as we should. In his condescension, the glory of Christ is truly on display. Oh, we could just sit down and close our eyes and meditate on that all day long. In conclusion, then, this condescension is a most mysterious and incomprehensible thing. It is to be believed and embraced only based upon the divine revelation of God's Word. You can't find it anywhere else. We believe it only because it's revealed in the written Word of God. Though we do not and cannot fully understand it, we must believe it nevertheless because it's revealed in the Word of God. This truth is fundamental to the Christian religion. Belief in this is essential to salvation. You know, and, and you don't have to have all this technical knowledge, but you do need, you have to believe that God came as a man and he condescended in doing so. Turn to 1 John 4, and I'll read verses 2 and 3. 1 John 4, 2 and 3. This is essential to salvation. In order to be a Christian, one must believe it. 1 John 4, 2 and 3. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that Spirit of Antichrist whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the Word. It is in His condescension that the Lord Jesus Christ 
is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Multitudes in Islam today are willing to admit that Christ was a prophet sent by God, but they do not and will not and cannot believe that he condescended to take our nature into union with his divine nature. They refuse to believe that Jesus Christ was God in the flesh. And this is why we can never compromise with the religion of Islam. Some so-called Christians are attempting to do so today. I wonder this morning, do you believe that Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh? Would you trust in this Christ today? Never have. He'll save you, if you will. And that's the end of our message for today, or our study, but next time, the Lord willing, we're going to look at the miracles of Christ. And our text will be John 20, 30, and 31.